How is the process of digitization changing the world? From discussions about intimacy to the surveillance of publics, we will bring you ideas and speakers that question how digital elements are transforming our everyday lives. Welcome to the Global Digital Cultures Podcast. Here in the seminar on digital sex work in the age of COVID, and especially a very, very warm welcome to our three speakers of today, Yvette Luz, Angela Jones, and Zaire Krieger, which I honestly think is a, is a wonderful lineup. My name is Ola Veltijs. I am a sociologist here at the University of Amsterdam and just starting a research project <coughs> with a colleague, Thomas Poole, on webcam sex platforms. And this is the second in a series of three webinars um, that are part of a new research initiative at the university uh, called Global Digital Cultures. So today the um, webinar will be about the digitization of sex work. The format of the seminar or the webinar will be that all three speakers give a short five-minute opening statement, followed by some follow-up questions from me. Um, then there will be a discussion among the speakers, and that will be followed by questions from you, from the from the audience. And for now, I mean, without further ado, I would like to introduce the first speaker, and that is Yvette Luz, who is a sex worker and a sex workers' rights activist, and who is also, I mean, she, I think, um, in the Dutch and also international media, you can uh, see and hear and read her right regularly. And since recently, she's the managing editor of Red Insights. Um, should I do some marketing for you, Yvette? This is <laughs> redinsights.org. .org, uh, yes. And really wonderful news and knowledge platform for sex workers in the Netherlands. So the floor is to you, Yvette, and a very warm welcome here. Thank you. Um, so, um, my name is Fet Lures. I'm 35 years old, and I've been uh, start. I started in the industry like 10 years ago uh, in porn performance, and I've been webcamming uh, on a more regular uh, and less regular uh, basis for five years now. And um, one of the um, the main questions uh, I've been I've been hearing uh, over the last few months is: um, Are sex workers moving online? Can you not just go uh, online if you are an offline sex worker? Uh, uh, will uh, people um, uh, now stay stay online forever um, and things like that? Um, and yeah, there is a lot to do uh, about about the subject. And um, since I also assume there are a lot of non-sex workers here, uh, um, I, I would like to give a quick introduction of uh, the things you need um, to do in order to uh, become a webcam performer. Um, so... Um, this is sort of the, the very short version of uh, a workshop I have been giving for Humanitas. Um, you can find a longer uh, version of it online as well. Um, but um, yeah, so um, when you start webcaming, uh, there are several things 
uh, you need um, you need a computer. Um, you uh, you you probably will will want to have uh, an HD camera. Um, I sort of. Uh, um, I, I'm, I'm not in my own home. We uh, we decided to go to my to my parents-in-law quite uh, quite unexpectedly. So I grabbed my laptop and I did not grab my HD camera, um, which is actually for me funny because I'm I'm so used to looking at my own face in a very crisp and clear way that I'm like constantly really shocked how I look now. Um, probably if you look at the other uh, speakers, they will have better image quality. So that's a, an HD camera or not. Um, so you need um, access to Wi-Fi or to uh, to quick internet, which can be Wi-Fi, but preferably over cable. Uh, you need uh, a bunch of light. Right now I'm sitting in a, an outside uh, space, like with glass above me. Um, and um, uh, you would also, um, so if you don't, if you don't have access to a lot of light, you need like lamps. Um, and uh, for that, you probably also need a private space. Um, so having all those things is already like a bunch of stuff you, you need in order to be able to, to start a show even, um, or to webcam. To start a show is a different thing because then you also need an account on a website. Um, um, of course, you can arrange your own clients, maybe through Skype or something, or through uh, Dutch websites like Kinky. Uh, .nl or sex sex jobs where you can find a client and then maybe organize your own sex work but there are like a bunch of webcam sites that really get you help you get clients um, like Chatterbait we just saw but in order to get online like that you also need to have uh, profile pictures uh, you need to uh, have an international bank account you need to be able to identify with probably a passport or an ID card uh, so there's a lot of work involved yeah so um yeah, so so you have to you you need to have your your technical stuff. You need to have your your uh, uh, your ability to uh, to identify and and go on contract in a way with a with a uh, with a website and um, and then there's like a lot of a lot of things to take care of to to become successful, which includes marketing, which includes. Uh, creating a brand for yourself, thinking, thinking, how do I want to present? How do I not want to present? What are my own boundaries? How do I take care of myself while doing this and be sustainable uh, in, in that career? So just going online is not necessarily uh, a thing you just do uh, or not necessarily. It's not a thing you just do. Um, yeah. So, so far, so good. Um, yeah. Hey, Yvette, if I can just follow up on that. So, um, so that snapshot of what it takes to to become a, a webcam performer. What does it mean in terms of who has access in the end to these platforms and who hasn't? So, if you think in, the, in terms of like internet access, a camera, um, uh, a space, a private space. I mean, not just in the Netherlands, but but beyond. Yeah, in in other parts of the world. What what does it mean? Like who? What kind of inequalities does it create when it comes to getting access to to this form of digital sex work? 
Hmm. Well, you you need to have like a certain privilege to uh, to at least end up high in the rankings. Uh, a lot of algorithm programming is of course done uh, uh, in these websites as well. So the more privileged you are, and the more money you have to spend on technical quality, uh, the higher you end up on a website. Uh, the, the 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 easier it is to to make money. So when you are uh, when you are in a non internet uh, adjusted country, um, uh, that's that's already more difficult. And uh, we know that performers of color make less money than uh, than than white performers. Um, and so yeah, it's uh, it's in in that sense not different than um, the rest of capitalist world yeah yeah hey and sometimes you read by the way also in in angela jones's uh, book which um, i'll mention in this in a second that um it, it could be the case that because of digital possibilities to put to perform sex work more people would have access to it so people who maybe wouldn't be inclined to do offline physically interactive sex work would be inclined to do it online. How, how do you see that? Do you, do you think this, um, this? I think this is partly true and partly untrue. Uh -huh. um, for, uh, for some people, um, it will open up um, uh, possibilities um, that they did not have before. And I think definitely in terms of physical abilities, if you are uh, using a wheelchair uh, to get around, then uh, being in your own space, setting up your own space uh, is a lot, lot more accessible than um, uh, when you are uh, 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 able to to do street work uh, or not able to do street work so uh, there's a different there there there's a difference there but then again uh, there are people especially now during uh, times of corona um, there are there are people who already did not have access to to money to get all the the technical set uh, uh, needs and um, yeah they won't have that now there is a virus going on so people who were uh, doing survival sex work uh, and street-based survival sex work specifically um, yet yeah, their situation hasn't changed um, so yes it gives exit but it also uh, declines access yeah yeah and the the, the final the last question for now i would have i would be curious about in the five years that you have been doing online sex work yourself have you experienced changes uh, has mm. the, the online scene become different compared to five years ago um for me that's hard to say because i'm not really a, a, a scene kid so to speak i'm um i'm more involved with my offline community here in the netherlands than i am uh, involved with my online community uh, online yeah. um, but um, um yeah, there's like a constant innovation of websites and possibilities and, and, and technical quality and, and hookups with uh, interactive toys and stuff like that. So it's uh, there's a lot of tech driven innovation going on. Um, and maybe it's also uh, good to, to mention that. So I have a background in porn. Um, and then when I started camming, you you sort of need to get yourself out there again um, and um, being on online now or findable for 10 years now in total um, I do 
um, I, I have seen my following grow, even though I'm not branding or promoting myself as hard, but like spending time within a career will give you uh, more opportunities as well, um, which um, uh, I didn't have when I just started. Um, I can rely on a fan base now, which I couldn't when I just started. So for me, for me personally, that changed uh, over time and also the hourly rate I was able to make. It changed to the to the better or to the worse? It changed to the better, yeah. yeah. Good. Good. Okay, thanks. We'll get back to, to these themes later on in the, in the discussion. Um, but let's uh, for now move on to Angela Jones, who um, uh, uh, has passed as a sex worker, but is now associate professor of sociology at Farmingdale State College, in, uh, which is part of the State University of New York. And she is also author of the book, Camming, Money, Power and Pleasure in the Sex Work Industry, which I would say is the first comprehensive book on this field. And I would definitely say that it is an absolute must to read for anybody interested in this, in this topic. Um, so it's a really big pleasure to, to have you here in the webinar, Angela, and the floor is to you. I'm really excited. Thank you for that really warm um, welcome. I appreciate that. Um, so I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, if it's okay, I want to start with a little story. Um, so in about uh, mid-March, right as things were getting really bad here in the States, um, and especially in New York where I am, I started getting lots of messages asking about um, how I thought COVID would affect camming and sex work more broadly. And especially people were sharing this one article with me, which I just um, recently dropped in the chat. Um, but it was a New York Post article entitled, Business Booming for Cam Girls Amid Coronavirus outbreak. And I immediately, and people are, many, many people are sending me this article. And I immediately thought to myself, you know, booming, booming for whom, right? Like the article and the conversations I saw playing out among non-sex workers were going something like this. Government agencies are shutting down, you know, studio porn production, brothels, red light districts, strip clubs, massage parlors, and, and so forth. And this would leave some of these workers looking to camming as a resolution to lost wages, especially given that many of these workers in the US, for example, are ineligible for government stimulus. Um, so however, sex workers migrating online are moving into an already saturated and highly competitive industry that privileges specific workers. So as I show in my book, Camming, while, while high incomes in the industry do occur, such earnings generally occur among, and again, generally occur among young, white, thin, cisgender women who spent years building prop popular brands, have a sizable client following. So as Yvette was alluding to, I think, you know, breaking into the industry can be difficult, right? It requires much time, skill, decent equipment. So I guess I want to say if business is booming, I bet it's primarily for a segment of cam models who are well-known, either porn stars or other sex workers, 
for, again, already existing CAM models who have followings. Um, so again, in light of all of these communications that I was getting from people and just my general kind of interest in, in this area, I, I wanted to kind of gauge the effects of the pandemic um, on camming and specifically on CAM models. And so I reached out to a few CAM models who participated in my research for the book um, and frankly, who I continue to have conversations with. Um, and I continue to have conversations with sex worker friends and activists here, uh, here in the States primarily. And their stories, you know, for me, painted a much different picture of the global pandemic's effects on the camming industry than that article does, right? So here's the bottom line. Yes, more people around the world are home, but many performers and customers are home with families, right? Like I'm home with my kid. Like I was rushing to get on this webinar, trying to help my kid with his math homework right before I even got online. And I'm sure he has questions, but which I'll get to in 30 minutes. Um, but but he's done. So, <laughs> so, so, but the point is, sorry. Um, so yeah, many performers and customers are home with families, right? Um, and now unemployed clients are cutting back, maybe cutting back on spending, you know, so we could say clients will still log on to get off, but if they're not spending, there's an increase in what many cam models or broadcasters call freeloaders, right? And so a terrible situation emerges. So, in essence, more competition means more extended hours and more work with even lower wages, right? And, and I was also thinking about given like the mental health toll of the pandemic, it's also critical to consider how taxing it must be for people to perform sexual labor for long hours for inadequate compensation. So again, as I argue in Kimming, the industry is saturated right? It's saturated with workers well before the pandemic hit. And unfortunately, you know, my sense is, is that, you know, migrating online or camming will not necessarily provide the economic stimulus many are looking for in the industry, right? So, and in, in, in the book, I posit that the inequality in this, Olaf, you, were, uh, you and Yvette were really getting at this, that the, the inequality generated by global capitalism, by transnational capitalism, means that for so many people around the world, the costs associated with becoming a CAM model are prohibitive, and access to the technologies and the private space required to CAM are not available. So to me, the pandemic only exacerbates this reality, right? Critically, you know, increased market saturation, the class-based and racial disparities in healthcare access and infection, and the digital divide undoubtedly mean that while already successful porn stars and cam models might just be seeing a boom, the most marginal workers will not, if they're even able um, to work at all. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Well, so I wouldn't mind continuing there. Um, so to, 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 if you could talk a little bit more about this competition and, and especially how that works out in a global setting. So, so one way to, to think of it would be, well, you have like uh, countries with high wages and, and high cost of living in the United States and Europe and other regions in the world. And then there are regions with low costs of living. So if it is really a global competition, so if these platforms kind of aggregate um, and, and, and have together sex workers from all over the world, would it really mean that like wages are going to be driven down to levels where only 
sex workers from countries where the cost of living is low would be able to survive? Or how does that global, is there like a real global competition? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's certainly global competition. Um, again, I think there's, so there's two things. One, you know, there were, there were vast differences in people's experiences based on their location in the world, right? So clearly, you know, folks who I talked to, I'm thinking of cam models in, in Hungary and Romania, like there were other people I talked to who said, look, you know, when I make, even in Spain, who said, look, when I make an extra $1,500, $2,000 US dollars a month, right, like that, you know, to me <laughs> is very significant in terms of my access to resources. Whereas, you know, somebody living in the States, especially in an urban center like New York, is like, like an extra $1,500 yeah. a month. It's just a drop in the bucket. Like, that's going to pay my damn rent, yeah. you know. Um, but I think you raise also another interesting question. I think this is something that you and Yvette were first starting to get at in terms of kind of saturation and kind of how that's changed over time. So there were a number of CAM models who I talked to who have, you know, been sex workers for, you know, the better part of two decades. Um, and, you know, had this really interesting or unique vantage point from which to think about the camming market, right? Because they'd started like in the late 90s, right? And really saw it evolve. And so like, look, you know, when they first started, you know, they just popped online, you know, didn't have to really think about, a, you know, highly designed show. They're not playing games. There's no Twitter account. You know, and they said over time, there became other demands in terms of, for example, you know, really managing a brand, right? And having to actively market yourself and how time consuming that became, right? Where, you know, now they have a, they have a Snapchat, a Twitter. And, you know, as Yvette was saying, with all these technological developments means these folks need to, you know, um, keep up with those developments, which one, getting back to the inequality here, right? Um, you know, this now becomes costly. It becomes time consuming. And also thinking in terms of one's wages or earnings, to me, there's a difference if I'm just logging on and doing, or somebody's logging on and doing a show for say two hours, right? And that's it. That's all the work they do as opposed to somebody who now has to manage a Twitter following, right? Communicate offline. Maybe they have a separate cell phone. And so now they're, you know, charging, um, they're increasingly creating content. Right. Which, again, can create this additional stream of revenue. Right. Like if you also have an OnlyFans account or if now you have this following that you're distributing everything from, I don't know, pornographic content, pictures, videos, I don't know, panties, um, you know, there's this additional stream of income. But at the same time, the thing that I heard a lot from both camels in my research and just frankly, sex workers in my life, <laughs> so that, like, this can become really demanding, you know, it, take away from some of the pleasure of the work. Like now it's really starting to feel more like, you know, boring vanilla mm -hmm. work, right? Um, and also, in, and I'll sum up here, but something else I thought was really interesting, and I'm thinking of a long-term sex worker that I talked to from the UK who said, you know, and was talking specifically about market saturation and said, you know, one of the things and she wasn't the only person who talked about this, but said, like, you know, it was profound for me because she said that she had to take a break from camming because she said that she was finding, in her opinion, that clients were asking for more, right? Like when she started a decade ago, like she would barely even take off her clothes for like the first hour, you know, um, and that now clients were becoming more demanding, you know, asking for a lot of you know, sexual um, activities or performances that they were increasingly not comfortable with, like a lot more kink BDSM work, which, you know, for a lot of folks are like, first of all, I'm not technically proficient in this work. I get that it's lucrative, you know, but they're asking me to perform things. And again, I'm thinking this particular 
cam model from the UK who said, look, I had to take a break because it just felt like in order to be, if that was talking about this, in order to be, you know, in that top, you know, thinking about the algorithms these sites use, in order to be at the top of the page, folks, you know, that I talked to said, you know, I'm starting to feel like in order to be competitive in this saturated market that I have to perform things that I'm just not comfortable with, Mm -hmm. right? That there's an increasing demand for things that like I wouldn't have been asked for or wouldn't have feel felt compelled to do, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, uh, I mean, I I hope we can get back to that in the, in the discussion. It is a fairly um, dystopian picture that is yeah that, that comes into being there with wages dropping people having to do more extreme things a small group of performers getting a lot of profits and something that we didn't talk about yet those platforms themselves getting taking a huge cut out of the earnings so i i hope to be that we can talk further about what to do about this saturation of the markets Absolutely. and the discussion and- and I just want to add really quick, and I think because Yvette was getting at this, and I hope part of that discussion is attentive to how this reality is racialized and classed and gendered and has to do with ability. Because again, my concern is primarily about the marginal workers. So again, I think there are a lot of folks who are surviving and thriving online in this environment. But I think it's interesting to think about who's more likely to be surviving and thriving in this market, you know, and who's more likely to be at the bottom of that page, not necessarily earning Um, much money at all. Great. Okay. So um, it's a a great pleasure to now turn to the third speaker, Zaire Krieger, who is a spoken word artist. She has a BA in international and European law. She works as a journalist, um, has done research for the Dutch NGO Bits of Freedom on an American law um, uh, that is uh, supposedly addressing human trafficking. Um, so it's a great pleasure to have you here, Zaire, and the floor, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to try and build on the previous speakers, even though uh, what I do doesn't necessarily touch on COVID or what I've done doesn't necessarily touch on COVID. So uh, about two years ago, there was a law that was passed in the United States. Uh, it was called FOSTA-SESTA. And FOSTA-SESTA roughly stands for Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act and Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act, basically. The reasoning for this had to do with a site called Backpage. And Backpage was single-handedly responsible for a large part of sex trafficking advertisements uh, online. And because they wanted to be able to convict Backpage, they sort of drew up this law um, that enabled um, them to convict platforms for what the users posted. This was significant because it was sort of technically um, um, chipping away at a very important freedom of speech online law called Section 230. I'm not going to bore you with like the legal implications of whatever, but Section 230 basically is called the law that created the internet as we know it because it created a situation where platforms facebook google whatever platform you're on they are not liable for whatever you post so they are not concerned with censoring you and every single uh, comment personally because they don't have to because they're not legally liable for what you post you are liable for what you post mm-hmm. logically now what fastest did is we're going to make platforms liable if we find that they have sex trafficking advertisements on their site. What's problematic about this is that, first of all, 
um, knowing the difference between what is sex trafficking and what is uh, sex work online and in advertisement can be super difficult. Um, in my research, I spoke to the Dutch police and they ha are having ridiculous difficulty with this. And because they are having so much difficulty with this, they are just cracking down on sex workers not necessarily sex trafficking. Um, so basically the law inadvertently asks platforms to act as policemen online, to know the difference between uh, a sex trafficking uh, advertisement and a sex worker advertisement. So that's problematic because could you even ask a platform to be able to do that? Um, secondly, um, because it is so difficult to know what all your users are posting, a lot of platforms were changing their terms of agreements. Um, some silently, some overtly. Um, so, example, Facebook changed their terms of agreement, basically saying, okay, no one ever on our platform can ask for sex at all. So if you were to post as a, as a just a regular user, uh, um, excuse my French, wanna fuck, if you were to ask that, that technically would be against the terms of agreement of Facebook because of FOSTA-SESTA. Now, what we're seeing here is that obviously Facebook has a ridiculously large um, monopoly position in the online market. So FOSTA-SESTA as an American law, because it changed our terms of agreements, has an effect on every single user around the world, not just American users. It has an effect on every single sex worker around the world. Um, so it's problematic because you're making platforms out to be policemen, which they can't do. It's problematic because it only um, solidifies the monopoly position that a lot of these platforms already have. A really good example is Pounced. Pounced was a smaller platform. Um, and because they were so small, they said, listen, we, we can't continue being this platform because we, we do not have the money to have all this litigation. If you are Facebook and you have a large battery of lawyers to protect yourself against any sort of liability, um, you can do whatever you want. But if you are a smaller platform, you can't enter the market like that. So it only solidifies the already humongous monopoly position that Google, Facebook, and these large platforms have. Now, so it's not problematic for the platforms themselves. It's problematic for sort of the market of platforms. It's problematic for users because we actually don't actually know what we can and can't say. It censors us. But the largest group that is being affected are sex workers. One of the things that happened right after FOSTA got implemented is that a lot of sex workers were saying, being online gave me agency. It gave me uh, an ability to screen my clients. It gave me ability to, to set my own prices, to set my own times. But if you cannot work online, because as some of you might know, I did, forgot to explain this, but um, the, the law does differentiate technically between legal and illegal sex work. The funny, obviously, thing is that the only place where sex work is technically fully legal is some places in Nevada. So really what the law does, it completely shuts down any sort of sex advertisements anywhere. So a lot of sex workers were pushed offline on the streets. So one of the horrible, horrible side effects of FOSTA-SESTA is that there has been a spike, according to some um, activist, sex worker activist groups, spikes in deaths of sex workers. Um, and sort of to wrap all of this up, to just show you how ridiculous this whole thing was, the original reason why FOSTA-SESTA was created was Backpage, this site. Interestingly enough, Backpage was convicted on the basis of regular criminal law. In other words, FOSTA-SESTA, this special act that was going to save 
all this sex trafficking from happening didn't actually do what it was intended to do because Backpage got convicted on basic criminal law and these guys are in jail for enabling sex trafficking of minors. Um, right now, as of right now, uh, the laws is still um, being fought by mostly um, one of the big players is Electric Frontier Foundation. Really good site to look up if you want to know anything about freedom of speech online. They, um, they, the court said that it didn't have standing to fight the law because they weren't directly affected. You have to be directly affected to have standing for law. But as of 2020, January, it was said that they did have standing. So now that case is going to be moved on and we are finally going to get to the actual content of uh, the law and whether it actually infringes upon freedom of speech. Um, so that is sort of the research that I have done because I only have five minutes. I sort of only got to the uh, mostly American consequences. Um, but I did speak to, for example, a site like Ginky, which is a Dutch site, um, uh, and sex workers over there are also affected. So um, yeah, that's sort of what I wanted to share with you. Yeah. Yeah, that's really that's really helpful. I have one. Um, it's probably a, a stupid question, and I should know myself, but I don't. And that is why why is Twitter still? Why does it is it still possible to for also for sex workers to so in spite of uh, Foster says that to to well kind of yeah market themselves there. Uh, well, I mean yes and no. I've spoken to a few sex workers. I mean maybe Yvette and Angela can speak on this more. But from what I've seen is that shadow banning is something that happens quite often. So if you have built up a client base of over five years on Twitter and all of a sudden your clients are saying, hey, we can't find your tweets or we can't see you. I don't know what you're doing. Um, and that's sort of one really problematic thing about FASTA is that because platforms didn't want to be liable in any way, shape or form, some of them silently changed their terms of agreement or just, just literally started deleting pictures and videos on like docs, like just deleting stuff without the users even knowing. Um, so there wasn't really much transparency on how these platforms are implementing this law and they will probably deny forever that it's because of process. Okay. It probably is. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and another question I would have um, pertains to, to the Dutch situation. So there is this bill um, now, on a new bill on regulating sex work in the Netherlands, which will probably, or the idea, the planning is, I think, to have it in the parliament in the fall. Do you know um, if there are any initiatives like, like Foster Sesta in uh. the Netherlands? Um, or in general, I mean, do you know... Um, how the Dutch government, if and how it wants to regulate online sex work in so the Netherlands? The Dutch, the Dutch um, sphere tends to be a little bit more tricky because you also have EU law. Uh -huh. um, that it takes a very important, well, an important case for sort of freedom of expression and liability with regards to platforms is the Delphi case, which is an Estonian case in which someone who posted something, um, the platform was held liable. So the jurisprudence on EU law is a little bit tricky because it's not that reason of a case. Um, I'm not, uh, the, the, the thing is like FOSTA SESTA is having such an impact on so many platforms that I don't, if it, if it's like working, I don't think um, we would even need to have a Dutch law here. Like if you're able to, if you were able to crack down on sex work on Facebook, Google, Twitter, literally uh -huh. any international site, like it doesn't, 
there's there's no need to, to do that in the Netherlands as much. I don't. I'm not. I'm not well read on whatever the the Christians are doing in the Netherlands. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Hey, I would like to to open yeah the, the discussion to to the three of you. Um, and it's just a general question for now. Do you does any of you want to pick up on the themes? that the others have been addressing in their statements. Yeah, Yvette, go for it. Um, yeah, I would, um, I, I would like to address that we uh, do indeed have uh, a law coming up, uh, which is uh, going to, uh, to be discussed in Parliament uh, this fall. Um, um, and this has a very um, um, specified uh, licensing system um, in uh, written within uh, within that law um, and and it will basically criminalize um, every sex worker who will not be able to get a license or who will not apply for a license and license means registration as eh? so it's the registration of sex workers which are sex workers have been fighting against for years and years and years um, so it's a law sex workers really don't want and um and it will it will criminalize uh sex workers clients and third parties and uh it looks like they intend that they will also criminalize online third parties like uh, websites who are offering advertisement space for uh, offline sex work so yeah uh, that's uh that's that's even stronger than a fosta sesta because they will just not even about human trafficking it's about your about sex workers uh not having a registration um so being criminalized also, also if you do webcam sex work would you also no no this will be specifically um uh on on uh prostitution um but um yeah because it's such a um a, an unclear uh law still it sounds like a mess to me yeah, it sounds it is a mess because who's who's going to draw the line? I mean, um, are, when you are a web camera, a Dutch web camera, who is also offering offline services, will your um, will your website be held accountable if people find you in like it's 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 that that sounds like a, an, an absolute mess of the law, like the, the the implications of sort of freedom of speech online as well as um the fact that there often are only a limited amount of licenses that they will give out in a particular area right like man wow that's great. yeah well they they it's it's called the wrs the wetregulering sekswerk and um sex workers uh, are fighting really hard to not get that through parliament um for for all of us I just wanted to chime in very quickly. I'm conscious of the time about, you know, FOSTA-SESTA and what I'm seeing in some of the research that I've been doing now. So my most research, my most recent research project, I've been interviewing transmasculine and non-binary escorts, and, and, and this was not just limited to the U.S. So folks in everywhere from Thailand to Belgium to right, <laughs> a range of countries, I won't give you the exhaustive list, but like what I'm hearing is that like FOSTA-SESTA has like transnational is trans is is the deleterious transnational harms right like this is affecting people you know um around the world and i just wanted to note that um i dropped in the chat some more information about the most recent um attempts in the u.s um 
in Sassa because there was September 2nd, um, the Woodhull Freedom Foundation, along with some other plaintiffs, um, did file another motion for a summary of judgment, basically seeking to declare FOSTA unconstitutional. So this is the most recent development. Um, and again, I put that in the chat for anybody who's interested. Hey, um, um, I would I would be of all from all three of you really interested in what we were talking about, and I think also what Angela and Yvette were talking about before this idea of saturation and this yeah sense of unfairness and deep inequality that you see on platforms. And there's also one question from uh, one of the the people in the online audience from Edna Krismanovic from Utrecht University, and that is what strategies can we think of can can performers think of to to establish a more fair work environment and to fight the biases, especially of artificial intelligence and uh, the algorithms and uh, this yeah, kind of winner-take-all structure that they seem to create and propel where a small number of performers are reaping all the profits and the the platforms are reaping because, I mean, nobody has said that explicitly so far, but it would be good for the audience who doesn't know to know that usually more than 50% of every dollar or euro that is earned on a platform is going to the platform itself and not to the worker. How, how can we, do you have any ideas about how a fairer uh, work environment in digital sex work can somehow be fostered? Um, I would say decrim, decriminalization of sex work in, in, in all its forms. <laughs> Um, that you don't have to be reliable on like a big company to even have access to uh, to clients or to have access to uh, a safe financial space. I mean, if you want to arrange your own clients and set up a real life uh, date or an online date, you should be able to maintain your privacy. And uh, for instance, the banking system uh, doesn't allow sex workers to have a, uh, a business bank account account so that will put you um, um, uh, put you in, in danger of privacy but but also uh, also especially in, in in times in times like these you should uh, have to uh, be able to mobile in a way to move in online and offline spaces just easily without being obstructed by by law or um, or or danger. But, but Yvette, when you say that it would be great um, if you wouldn't be relying on, on one of the big uh, multinational platform companies or mm -hmm. multinational, I mean, American, I think usually, what, how, what alternative uh, would you be thinking of? I mean, I guess the advantage of these platforms is that they also attract a huge number of, uh, of potential clients. And um, how, what, how could that be organized alternatively? Well, it's the monopoly, right? Um, and um, um, as long as we uh, deny sex workers their rights, just in general, uh -huh. um, it's uh, the, the sex workers don't have time to start corporations and stuff like that, uh, and and to build their own systems uh -huh. for their own needs. Um, yeah. So uh, decrim um, would, I think, for the for the online and the offline world, be uh, a very important first step. Uh -huh. And have like cooperatively established platforms. If people would be interested in that, yes, yeah. yeah. 
I can add to this that there was sort of, uh, because of the shadow batting on Twitter, there was Twitter created, sex worker Twitter. Um, I'm not sure on the status of it now, um, but indeed the network problem, what we call the network problem is you want to be where everybody is. And that creates sort of an automatic monopoly position for whatever that platform is, is, is just sort of really the name of the game. And it's really impossible almost to sort of crack, like to figure out how to fix that. I mean, I wouldn't know. So. So I think, so I see the question in the chat and, and specific strategies that CAM performers um, can use, right? I think like, look, some of this requires that these CAM sites make structural changes or, you know, reconfigure their algorithms, which I don't think we should hold our breath for, for most of them anyway. Um, but so, for example, you know, you're talking about the campsites themselves. I would say, you know, do research on the campsites, right? Just in terms of, you know, how, what determines their algorithm, right? So, for example, think about, you know, Chatterbait, where the algorithm is determined by the number of viewers in your room. Whereas if you look at a site like My Free Cams, the, the, the structure of that CAM score makes it even harder, you know, um, to, to be successful. So maybe doing some research about the structure of the CAM site, the type of algorithm that they're using, you know, turn to the community. There are a lot of online community forums, you know, um, where people are posting tips, tricks, you know, best practices, um, go there. Um, something that I heard just in terms of navigating, especially sexual racism and, you know, and, and thinking about all this inequality exists. I've, you know, I talked to a lot of cam models who will, they'll mess with their filters, right? So if we know that, um, you know, cam models disproportionately from the U.S., maybe to a lesser extent, the U.K. tend to have some advantages over folks, say, in Colombia, for example, you know, folks will, will mess with their filters and say that they're in a country that they're not, right? Like say that they're in the U.S. Um, or even in terms of their racial filters, right? will list mixed race. Um, you know, if they are passing, they will list white. I think that's a whole conversation, <laughs> a whole nother conversation yeah. in and of itself that folks have to strategically brand themselves in this way um, yeah. to be successful. But I think um, I'm sorry to interrupt, Angela, but what would be, be a good alternative algorithm? So now I think a lot of the algorithms, they kind of propel success. Once you're successful, you will become even more successful. What would be an alternative? I mean, you do, if you think of like, uh, lining up uh, thumbnails, what, what would be, be a good way of doing that? I mean, I guess part of me ideally would love to see them think about, you know, inclusion policies, right, and designing algorithms that take folks who are at the bottom and give them a boost um, so that this isn't, right, so we don't see this self-fulfilling prophecy continue to emerge where the people at the top continue to stay there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I also just wanted to echo what Yvette was saying, because the second part of the question, I think, was, was more political, right? Like, I started labor organizing when I was 13 years old. So organizing is always going to be the answer for me. One of the things that I found really intriguing about my research about the camming industry is that there's this really super vibrant, both off and online community that, you know, when I think about sex worker organizing, I don't know that I necessarily see that happening, you know, among um, some cam models, right? Although that can be reductive because I don't think that we should assume that people are just working. Like I also saw a question from Kavita, like I don't think that we should always assume that, you know, people who are cam models are also not escorts or also not pro downs or also not working in other industries, right? But organizing. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so the question of, of uh, Kavita uh, was if there is there in terms of different forms of of sex work online, offline, do you see a hierarchy there? 
um, between different types of, of sex work or different, yeah, so hierarchies within the sex traits? Um, so I think, I mean, this is something that we've seen play out for, for decades. I know when I first started, you know, the, the research product on camming, um, some of the initial cam models that I talked to kind of did this this posturing, right? This, this uh, distinguishing, right? And saying, well, I, I'm just a model. I'm just a model. But like, so I think that there is most certainly this hierarchy. But again, I think it's sometimes a misstep to assume that, you know, in this case, that CAM models are only CAM models, right? That like, again, I think there are a lot of CAM models who work in other industries. And so thinking about that hierarchy, I think is just complicated. Um, because we might, Put another way, we might be inclined to say, well, you know, camming and cam models are in this privileged position within the sex industry. But again, that assumes that's all they're doing. And I think that, again, um, that's not always the case. Uh-huh. So here, or Yvette, do you, do you have a, a take on this absence, presence of a hierarchy in different forms of, of sex work? Well, there is, of course, um, uh, a hierarchy um, in 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 the sex industry. Uh, I mean, we 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 call it a hierarchy for a reason. <laughs> um, I I think um, that also shifts through time and through people's own own perceptions. I think there's uh, there are people who are well. Uh, I I might be uh, uh, working in a brothel, but at least you can't find me on online. And there might be people who are like, well, I am a. Uh, a porn star, but at least I don't have to do shows and, and the other way around. So um, uh, I think within within sex worker um, within sex workers themselves, there's of course also like internalized stigma that has been brought upon us by 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 society, and that's that's that sometimes shows up in uh, in in different ways. Yeah. I'm not saying, and I'm also. I also want to say that not every sex worker feels like that, and especially because we have so much online uh, resources these days. Uh, I think uh, sex workers who want to organize or sex workers who want to learn from other sex workers have um, easier access to uh, to sex worker knowledge. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, hey, and now that you you bring up stigma, uh, Yvette, um, there was also a question about that from one of the people in the audience and related broader to what the move uh, or what the the digital digital sex work and the expansion of of uh, platform sex work what what has it done to stigma has it done anything to stigma to the to the good or to the bad has it decreased increased the stigma related to to sex work i mean it's a question again for all of you not necessarily i don't want to put you on the spot that well to be honest i also don't really have an answer it might it it might destigmatize in some spaces but it also may not necessarily for all spaces yeah i i i don't know if someone counted how much stigma uh, we experience yeah, Zahir or Angela, do you have any, do you have a take on this? I don't, I, it's kind of just echoing you bet, right? Like I think, um, you know, it's subjective, right? I think that for some people, they might argue that, you know, certainly there's less stigma. I mean, I think in general, one of the things, and I was thinking about this before, um, um, 
you know, I think we're seeing more of this, what we might call this demystification of porn or this democratization of porn. Um, and so I think there are some benefits here. I think in many ways, yeah, maybe, you know, the, the prevalence or the pervasiveness of, of, of pornographic imagery in some ways decreases stigma, but I would say not for a lot of sex workers um, and especially not for full service providers, right? So maybe it's become more commonplace or normalized to throw some picks up on only vids um, but I'm not convinced that you know say the stigma you know that trans women of color working offline and sex work you know is any better at all uh-huh. if yeah. not worse um, hey, um, but one question that is coming in and it pertains also to one of the questions that was listed in the in the, uh, in the blurb for this uh, webinar is uh, when it comes to to risks related to online sex work and particularly related to well i mean you were describing how you would do it from your private home usually your private bedroom how what kind of risks related to uh, a division keeping up a division between private um, and 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 working life does webcaming presents that would be both for for well again for all of you but in particular for yvette i guess and, and angela um, I don't think I can really answer because um, my work, um, my sex work as well as my activism has always been like very much uh, sewn through my my life. So um, I, I don't know um, how I, if I could even distinguish the two. Yeah. Um, and there's no but, No, I... I don't, I don't, for my sex work, well, it takes up some space in my, in my house, but I also use that space when I'm not sex working. Uh-huh. So um, I do, of course, take care. I do separate my, my real name and my, my, my work name for, uh, for, for, um, for, for, for privacy reasons, but also to maintain my privilege. Uh-huh. Um, the fact that when you Google my my real name, um, you will find a lot of interviews and not necessarily a close up of my pussy, and um, that helps me um, how horrible it is. But I think it helps me in my activism um, when people uh, find uh, an, an articulated uh, uh, interview before they uh, uh, see my sexual side, um, because yeah. That's that's how 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 taboo uh, sex uh, sexuality is, and how 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 stigmatized sex work is. Uh-huh. And Angela, and the sex workers that you have been interviewing for your Camming book, was it something that that they wanted to do, so to keep a distinction between work, private, um, and did they have any I don't know rituals, procedures, etc., to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a, I think we're inclined to say that, that camming and online sex work and, and camming in particular is safer, right? Because I think that's how the, the conversation began. But yet there's, you know, the danger of being capped and doxxed and harassed. And I've been thinking, you know, in writing the book in particular and in, in listening to people's narratives, thinking about the psychological costs sometimes of this work, right? Like sometimes it's fun and pleasurable, but other times, you know, if people online are constantly harassing you, and again, I like to think about this intersectionally, right? So thinking specifically just came to my mind, um, uh, 
a woman named Adeline in the book who's trans feminine was talking about the number of, you know, kind of transphobic trolls that she often has to deal with in the course of her work. Um, and, you know, how taxing that can be, mm-hmm. you know, and talking to performers of color who have said like, look, like the racist trolls, like sometimes they just don't stop. And like, I literally have to log off because I can't deal with them. And that, you know, and it models will often have to do quite a bit of labor and a work to protect themselves, getting at this private public piece that like, you know, if you got geo tags on, you got to turn them off, right? Like there's like, you know, I've heard the wildest stories, right? Like a cam model talked about, you know, um, from the U.S. was like camming outside, like in her backyard and mentioned that she was selling her house, like just gave some kind of what seemed like benign or innocuous details. And some client, because this, I guess, have none better to do at their time, like went online, used very particular de- details, used what we have here. It's called a multiple listing service to like find the house that she was selling because she happened to mention the city that she lives and then physically stalked and then stalked her in person. So while this may seem like an exceptional case, I think, you know, again, these forums, these online forums that CAM models have created are rich with information and best practices for protecting yourself online, you know, and again, making sure that people can't find you um, online. You know, again, beyond just creating that manufactured identity and like, okay, this is this is my performance name, you know, and taking these extra measures and steps to to try to keep people, you know, from being able to dox you and stalk you. Yeah, I sometimes I'm sorry to break in. I I sometimes actually forget about that part of the work, Um, but it's it's indeed still still work, and it feels like um, it it feels like part of the job, which it shouldn't be. Right, it shouldn't be. I um when I was researching, I think I was um I think I shouldn't have been surprised, but I kind of was, by the amount of sort of emotional toll it took on the people that I was interviewing, and how much you know you have to when you're researching stuff like that, you have to treat it with care, and um you know we can speak about data and stuff like that, but at the end of the day we're speaking about people's lives, and the stories that I have heard of people being you know put outside of their house because people found out where they lived, people talking to police about them, um, neighbors finding out what they were doing at home. Um, you know, uh, that stuff is real. And I think what you said about unionizing is so important because what I've seen is that they have lists of companies that they can use. So a lot of people don't know this, but if you are a sex worker in the Netherlands and you are using particular banks, for example, you cannot open accounts with particular banks. So they have lists of sites and platforms that they are able to use safely that don't uh, share their information. Um, yeah, it's uh, you really, really need to protect yourself, which indeed it shouldn't be like that. But it unfortunately is the case. So. Hey, it is uh, past four o'clock and I would honestly like to continue for at least another hour and there would be so many good questions to, to really do continue for another hour. But we, yeah, we made this agreement to, to keep this to a one hour uh, webinar. Um, I thought it was really, really great. Uh, I learned so much. So I really want to thank uh, all three of you for sharing your knowledge and insights uh, with us today. Um, There are some comments of people uh, going out of the seminar that are very, very warm and and positive. Uh, So I think uh, the the pleasure was shared by by many people. But again, I really want to thank all three speakers. Um, 
Um, yeah, and that was that was it. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you.